Uh, we are finishing our uh, study on the life of Abraham uh, entitled Grace as Mission. This morning in chapter 23 of Genesis, you'll find that on page 16 of the Bible that you'll find in the pew there. This deals with Sarah's death, but primarily about her, and not even her burial, which takes place at the end, but the whole of the chapter is about Abraham securing a burial spot for Sarah. So a little bit unusual at first as we look at this and think, wonder why so much time was spent on Abraham's effort to have a burial spot for Sarah, but hopefully we'll see some more of its significance as we go. So, Genesis chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Here is my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. Oh, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which is to the east of Mamre, The field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area 
was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we ask that you would show us mercy this day, Lord, as a church. We have prayed and sung for that mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you delight in mercy. You delight in compassion. You delight to do good to your people, as we read in our assurance from Jeremiah. You will plant us in the land with all your heart and soul. Lord, this means that you will continue to plant us in the midst of the redemption of Christ and see it be fruitful in our personal lives and in the life of our church with all your heart and soul. Lord, you will withhold nothing from your people. You you will not hold back in any way of doing us good. Lord, grant us faith. We confessed as we prayed, have mercy, to help our unbelief. Oh, Lord, how quickly we run after the empty cisterns. Enable us to see the riches that are in Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And as he says, the love that passes understanding of Christ. Lord, we would seek after you with all our hearts because you're seeking after us. You're seeking after our salvation. You're seeking that we taste of your salvation and and it manifests itself in our lives by our becoming more and more given up to your will, our becoming more and more pure and good and full of love and rich in accomplishment for the good of others. Lord, these are the things that that, that, that make us set free. These are the things that Give us a wide berth, so to speak, in our hearts to live lives of gratitude and joy, a fullness, generosity and resilience in the midst of a very, very difficult, painful, tragic world. Oh, Lord, do us good again in your word this morning. Have mercy upon us. Help our unbelief. Cause us to fix our hope upon the great blessings in Christ Jesus. We ask for your glory and honor. Amen. I hate to walk into a grim topic, but Kay and I ask each other, not every day, but with some regularity every once in a while, if one of us were to die, where would we bury the other one? Because we don't know. I mean, we've been here in Texas for 14 years. We did live in Dallas for a couple of years. But we Fort Worth people think that didn't count, right? That's not. Uh, but I don't know. I, do I take her back to Mississippi? Does she take me back to Alabama where our you know, family is? Or 
Do we stake claim in Texas? Our children are here. Our grandchildren are here. What would we do? We really don't know. So we'd appreciate counsel after service. <laughs> what your advice would be where we should bury one another. It's a great topic. Now, for Kay's Uncle Garvin, he knew where he wanted to be buried. Uncle Garvin, one of three uncles on Kay's mother's side, a good bit older than her mother. Her mother was that little baby girl caboose, you know, of the family. So this was way back in the 90s when we lived in Columbus, Mississippi, and Garvin had served in World War II. Uncle Garvin had um, been in a, a war camp. He'd been imprisoned during World War II, as did his brother Harry. So he came back to the United States, and I guess you'd call it self-banishment, that he lived in Chicago instead of the South for his whole life. But he lived in Chicago, okay, married. And the time of his death, though, he came back to Mississippi, in, in Louisville, Mississippi, where his mother and father were. And his pastor didn't, wasn't free, didn't want to travel during the holidays because it was right around Christmas. So we were able to make the trip over from Columbus an hour away, and we had a freezing cold, snowy funeral in the little cemetery there in uh, Louisville. And we kind of kidded, thinking he would be more used to this than we would, this, this freezing cold, you know. But Garvin knew he wanted to go back home. He wanted to go back home where his mom and dad were. Abraham didn't do that, right? Abraham didn't go back to his home. He didn't go back to the ancestry. He invested in the new place. He was creating a new ancestral home. And this was Canaan. And all he had to know about Canaan was the promise of God. He had no possession of Canaan at all. And in the end, when he had a part of Canaan, it was a cemetery. That was what he had. He had a graveyard. He had a grave. That was his piece of the pie of Canaan. But he chose not to go back to Haran, where his family was. For him, he was done with that. And he was looking to the future and the promise. So we look first here at Abraham's title and hope. And then we're going to see how this influenced Israel. As they were reading this story, recall to you that these stories were written for Israel as they were on the brink of entering the land of Canaan. So these are like sermons preached to Israel to encourage them as they were facing their future in Canaan. So it has some application for Israel, and it has some application for us as well as we look to our future and our inheritance, even as Abraham was looking to his inheritance. So... First, it was a wonderful thing that he was doing for Sarah. Sarah was really the only woman of importance in Genesis since Eve herself. And she really was a woman of heroic uh, proportions. And it shows the great honor he he showed her here and and the great affection that he had for her, uh, that he was establishing this uh, burial ground. And at first, as they were talking to him in such nice, you know, polite ways... Uh, They were saying, you don't need any part of a land. You don't have to buy this. We'll give you a place. 
But you see, that was to keep him in a helpless, dependent position. Because if you own the place and he and it's given to him, you can take it back any time you want. You can require all other kind of obligations. There are always, you know, ties to it. This is not what Abraham wanted. And as uh, Kidner says, many times when a group wants to keep out an insider, you can appeal to one individual who has an asset that he'd like to sell. Okay? So he appeals to Ephron in particular. How about Ephron? And at first it looks like Ephron is doing the same thing, but actually Ephron's method here of saying, let me give you the field, is the way they did it back then. In fact, 3,000 years later, this commentator named Dalich in the 1800s was in the same area. And he gave two incidences of this, one where you offered this fella a certain price, but the price is too low. And, you know, we'd just say, well, that's too low. You need to come up on your price. And here's how the guy responded. You offer something too low, and he says, oh, no, let me just give it to you. I'll just give the whole thing to you. You can just have it for free, no obligation. <laughs> that was his way of saying, I might as well just give it to you if that's all you're going to offer me, right? And so there's some of that here. Let me, no, let me just give you this, this you know, this little piece of land worth no Let me just give it to you. Also, he said there's another example where this uh, guy who is uh, uh, an official had this gray horse that his partner wanted. And they mentioned it to him. He said they were surprised the next day that the horse showed up where they were staying. And the guy said, you can have it for free. I'm just giving it to you. Just giving it to you. And his friend said, well, no, no, I'm not going to take it from you. And he actually said to him, well, what then are five purses that stood for a certain amount of silver? Well, then what then are five purses between you and me? Same words that were used back here. What is 400 shekels? 400 shekels may have been a fair price. We can't tell because of how much land and all, but it certainly was substantial price. And it just came out of the blue. I'm just going to give it to you. Well, okay, 400 shekels. (laughs) To us, it sounds pretty funny there. But it was a way for Abraham to fold into the culture, to line up. Of course, he was part of that culture as well. He knew how this worked, and he paid the full price. And you, you see in this account how often it underscores that it was public, and all the people of the gate were there. This is official. It, it has to be public, official, legal document. This land belongs to Abraham. And this was the only part of Canaan that he was going to have. And the stake in the ground reminded me of Tom Cruise in the movie Far and Away when he was this Irish immigrant. Some of you maybe have seen this. and He goes through all kinds of things coming from Ireland to the United States, things in New York City. He ends up in Oklahoma, and there's that huge race to stake a claim of land in Oklahoma, and he's caught up in it and almost gets killed fighting another man, all this stuff. And finally, at the end of the movie, he has the stake with the flag on it, and he drives it in the ground, you know. And he's got this place where he's, he's going to marry uh, Shannon uh, Christie, and he's going to raise a family. He's going to have the farm he's always dreamed of. He staked his claim. 
That's what Abraham's doing here. He is staking his claim. He believes in the promise. He's not going to inherit the land. He's not going to see this. But he stakes his claim and says, this is where me and my ancestors are going to be buried. Because God has promised us this land. Pretty amazing faith, right? In this situation. To look to the future of what he believed God was going to do. And the writer of Hebrews takes this up uh, in the New Testament. And he, he talks about those who died in faith not receiving the things promised. Abraham and Sarah, they were promised the land, but they didn't receive the land. And he says, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth, come bringing to mind what Abraham said here, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. They acknowledge that. These people who speak this way make it clear they're seeking a homeland. And he talks about a better country, a heavenly one. God's not ashamed to call them, for them to call him their God. He's prepared a city for them, a homeland, a city. So in some way, Abraham, in entrusting himself to God and his promise and staking claim to this little patch of land which God had promised the whole of the land, he is saying, you, Lord, have given me all things. You have given me finally a homeland. And if I don't have this earthly land, I still have you. I still have the homeland that you are, have promised me. So this was his way of saying, I utterly put myself in the hands of this God. I utterly entrust my future to him. And I utterly stake my claim upon his promise and his promise alone. And, of course, the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to think about the same thing. To be willing to lose whatever God may call us to lose in this life for the sake, within the promise that you can't lose anything ultimately if you're depending upon God for your fulfillment. If you're depending upon God for your ultimate blessing, all things will be yours in the end. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is what even Abraham uh, and his descendants believed. So, this is Abraham's title and hope. But then Israel had a title and hope. And really, this purchase of this land at Machpelah was a first step toward the whole of Israel obtaining Canaan. In fact, uh, Genesis draws attention to this point here in this passage by mentioning twice, in the land of Canaan. And it's really redundant because we all know we're in the land of Canaan right here. It's not a surprise. Oh, are you in Canaan? You've been in Canaan the whole time. But he's underscoring, it's in the land of Canaan. It's in the land of Canaan. And this, of course, is a reminder to Israelites as they're reading this. Wait a minute. Our, our, our mother, Sarah, died in Canaan. We have land there. <laughs> and not only was Abraham, uh, Sarah buried, but then Abraham was buried, then Isaac and Rebekah were buried there, and then Jacob and Leah were buried there. So their ancestors are buried there. This is the Abraham Cemetery. It belongs to us. We, we know we have legal claim. Look at all this. It's, it's ours. This, this is a, a, a foretaste, a little down payment of the whole of the land here. And even Joseph, even Joseph, when he was dying at the very end of uh, Genesis, 
he says, he makes the Israelites swear and he says, when God comes to you, and he means by this when eventually God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. He says, when that happens, it's going to be a long time from now, but when that happens, you carry my bones from here and take them back there. See, the promise. This land is ours. God has promised it. We've got a plot there, and here is Joseph himself. Jacob, though he ended up in Egypt himself, said, and, and, and Joseph got permission from Pharaoh to come all the way back up to Canaan to bury Jacob right up there. That's where Jacob wanted to be buried. And so they, he, he buys the land. He has the title. He's established it for posterity. And so Israel is headed toward the land where Sarah died. It's headed toward the property owned by Abraham. It should look to that as a legal right to to the land. Israel is headed for the family burial site. They must rejoice in what is theirs for God. So this is an encouragement to Israel, even as they read this, even as they are headed toward Israel, toward Canaan to see uh, that they have a stake already there through what Abraham has done. But especially then, this is for us our title and hope as the people of God. And our hope that we have is the hope of the whole world, Jesus Christ himself and what he's done. And this is what we began with and end with is grace's mission. The grace that we have been brought into an inheritance becomes our mission to proclaim to others the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And here's a difference that is startling between the two. They are looking to an impressive cemetery, probably fairly impressive land because it's 400 shekels. So they're looking to an impressive cemetery Israel's looking to the whole land of Canaan. We look to the death and resurrection of Christ. That's our claim to the future. The death and resurrection and now reign of Christ. The fact, as Ryan emphasized in his opening prayer, that you reign over all things. He reigns over all things to finally Deliver the whole earth into the possession of his children. So the hope, not just of a land, and the hope not of just a cemetery, but the hope of a grave with a stone rolled aside. We have the hope of a resurrected Savior that calls us into a new creation that he begun, he began in his resurrection. He was given deed to the whole earth. Again, Ryan mentioned Psalm 2. Uh, Ask for the nations and they will be given to you. The nations are yours. You've earned it. How? Because you fully manifested the great love of God. That this is who God is. God is the kind of God who lays down his life even for sinners. God is the kind of hero God who spends himself lavishly for the good of those who had hated him before. That's who God is. And so you have demonstrated this and you've borne away that very wrath that people deserve. You've stood in their place and died for them. And so you 
are exalted. You are given the possession of the earth. Isn't it glorious that the reason he is king is that he died? The reason he is king is the infinite nature of his compassion and mercy and love. That's why he reigns. And that's why we have a hope in him. He's made Lord of the whole earth on behalf of all of those who belong to him. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, you belong to the Lord of the whole earth who has been given the whole earth as his possession to do with as he pleases. That's who we belong to, this compassionate, mighty King Jesus. And it's interesting that Paul, in talking about even Abraham, as he's looking at the promise to Abraham in the light of Christ, he says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, of the whole world, came through faith. So this promise to Abraham of the land was a little capsule capsule of the real nature of the promise that he was going to inherit the whole world. And so we have so many passages in the New Testament that talk about how heaven and earth will be united in Christ, Paul says. Christ will reconcile all things to himself. They speak about, in Acts 3, the restoration of all things. Or Matthew 19, the new world or the regeneration of all things. This is a common language of the New Testament, that this creation will not be lost. This creation will not be cast aside. This is God's world. This is my Father's world. My Father has not let it go. But he has sent his Son not only to redeem his people, but to redeem and reconcile all things to himself. To gain this world back in that sense. Though it always, of course, was under God's control. And so our final glory when Christ comes again and transforms our body to be just like his glorious body. And as John says, it's fully manifested that we're the children of God. Doesn't look like it now, but it will be manifested in that last day when we'll be seen as the children of God. And we will appear with him in glory. And Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. The things that are described for our inheritance soar beyond imagination. That we are recreated as human beings to be these glorious, powerful beings we can't imagine. The world is renewed so that all the curse is gone. We work together in some kind of amazing uh, way of of, of love and communion and peace. interlocked and fully agreeing on all things and giving ourselves to this uh, uh, creation and culture uh, to reign with him forever. So this, this promise, this promise of Canaan that Abraham is, is set upon this, this investment in the future, not going back to his homeland is this example to us. You see that, We turn our backs upon the world that opposes God. We turn our backs on the evil that opposes God and opposes one another. And we abandon it and abandon ourselves to this gracious God who redeems us from our sin, who brings about forgiveness 
and renews us so that we become new people even here and gradually more and more take on the character of God. And we have as our final hope the new creation. So this summarizes a little bit the nature of our hope, how glorious it is. But let's just close with a few applications of what does this mean for us? How do we apply this hope to our lives? It's encouraging, first, that Paul can say in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So take up the whole of the Old Testament. Whatever was written, he said, okay, was written for our encouragement so that we would endure and we would have hope. So that means, it sounds to me, that you can put a big H-O-P-E on the whole Old Testament. Hope. And it tells you and me that I need to read this and find its hope. Because that's why it was written. For my teaching so that I would have endurance and encouragement. I would have hope. How am I reading the Old Testament? What am I looking for there? By God's grace, let's look for hope. Hope in the Psalms, hope in the stories, hope everywhere, bristling with hope everywhere in the Old Testament. Oh, Lord, show me, show me the hope that you've laid out for me there. So hope in general, but 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead, when Christ is going to come and we're going to be transformed He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. How often do you feel that all that I've done, whatever I've done, seems to fall to nothing, right? How frustrating is this life? How disappointing is this life? How many tragedies and downturns, things that we wanted to do but were not able to do, things we hoped turned out a certain... He says, this thought of resurrection causes us to be steadfast and immovable. And when it says always abounding in the work of the Lord, you can translate that, always abounding in goodness, always abounding in spending yourself in love for others. Because your labor is not in vain. Resurrection is coming. Resurrection is coming. And you can spin yourself and spin yourself and spin yourself. You'll never lose yourself. You will only gain yourself. Jesus put it that way, right? Seed buried in the ground, that's when it bears fruit, when it dies. So brothers and sisters, keep dying. Keep giving your life away for Jesus. Keep finding joy Nurturing joy in the gospel to give yourself away. It's never in vain. There is resurrection. There is an inheritance. It is glorious. John would put it this way. Everyone who thus hopes. Again, he's talking about the second coming. Purifies himself. So as you fix your hope upon him. It causes you to be pure. It it, it guards you against lust. It guards you against passions. 
Because your heart is fixed upon this God of abundance and richness and the hope that you have. And you don't feel let more and more. You, you don't have to cling to these various things to think, I'm going to find life here, life there, life in another place. It helps you to see that these uh, aberrations away from his will are empty cisterns, like we read from Jeremiah. They don't hold water. But having the hope of Jesus and the richness and fulfillment of the new creation helps you see he's not going to do me ill. He's not going to leave me out of blessing. He's going to enrich me. I can trust his will in these things. And I can purify myself as I fix my hope upon him. And that's why Peter would say, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you. As we set our hope on him, it frees us and it purifies us. There are many passages, we won't read them, but on the place of hope in suffering, right? The place of hope in suffering. And I love the comparisons. For instance... Paul can say, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So add up the worst affliction and suffering you can imagine. Paul had had a lot. He He could list it, right? Paragraphs of his own personal suffering, beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, etc. He had suffered horrible physical pain again and again. He says... Light, momentary. Light? All that you call light? You call that a lifetime of, mo- of years of suffering momentary? For eternal weight of what? Glory. Glory. He's thinking of the new creation. He's thinking of resurrection. He's thinking of this inheritance that he has. And he's able to endure suffering because of the great weight of glory that he has. So, in the midst of this, it is only the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in in Romans 15, by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can abound in hope. And indeed, interesting, they had a grave as a guarantee of their hope. Paul says, you have the Holy Spirit living in you as the guarantee of your hope. Just think of the richness of the hope we have. Not a dead body in a grave, but a living Lord over all things and the living Holy Spirit living in us as our guarantee of the hope to come. And it's in these things that Paul would say, 1 Corinthians Thessalonians 4, as he's again talking about the the, uh, coming of Christ, he says, I don't want you to grieve like other people grieve, like the world grieves. We don't grieve like they do. We grieve with hope. We grieve with expectation. And finally, Paul says these words. Let me just read them in 1 Thessalonians 5. You're not in darkness, brothers, for that day, the day of Christ's coming, to surprise you like a thief. You're all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's our hope. And brothers and sisters, 
no matter what happens to you or me, it allows us to be children of the day at all times because our hope is fixed on the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ. And if you've never known Christ Jesus, I want to call you to a Lord who not only brings you into forgiveness with God immediately, fellowship with God and his people immediately, and a a new living power to change and become a more and more beautiful person in your life. But he also calls you to the ultimate hope of a new creation. Just think of it. Your past dealt with, with guilt. Your present as you're being transformed. And your future for a new creation in a new body. This is a Lord, a King to adore, to submit to, to give yourself to. Who loves you and has given himself up for you. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise you, we bless your great name that you have given us such a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may it cause us to be steadfast and immovable. May it cause us to see ourselves as children of light, even in the midst of suffering. Lord, may it cause us to purify ourselves. May we begin to read hope everywhere. Even in the Old Testament, that's what Paul talks about, and even more, uh, to read the New Testament with all of its glorious hope for us. This hope that would actually strengthen us and change us day to day to be the people you've called us to be. Oh, Lord, fix our hope, our, our, our lives in hope. As, as Paul pronounces the benediction, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. And may we bring this mission, have this mission to bring this grace of hope to a world that is, in Paul's word, utterly without hope. Amen.